Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Christmas at Pemberley. We are talking about Pride and Prejudice today, and the reference we are pulling from is at the very end of the novel. Elizabeth is writing to her aunt, Mrs. Gardner, to let her know that she and Darcy are finally engaged, and she is just delightfully giddy at the prospect. I mean, understandably (laughs) so. We get it. Right. Yes. So in the letter, she writes, I would have thanked you before, my dear aunt, as I ought to have done for your long, kind, satisfactory detail of particulars. But to say the truth, I was too cross to write. You supposed more than really existed. But now, suppose as much as you choose. Give a loose rein to your fancy. Indulge your imagination in every possible flight which the subject will afford. And unless you believe me actually married, you cannot greatly err. And so she goes on to talk about how much she's excited to, you know, marry and how happy she is. And then at the end of the letter, she says, Mr. Darcy sends you all the love in the world that he can spare from me. You are all to come to Pemberley at Christmas. So that's how she ends out her letter with her with her aunt. And so it's very clear that even in her big, great excitement for being married to Darcy, who's a total smoke show and very rich and she's in love, it's great. <laughs> she is also celebrating this idea of like, yay, my family can come to Pemberley at Christmas. So that's what we want to focus on today is this idea of what would Pemberley Christmas look like? So for that, we need to start off by reframing the way we think about Christmas in some ways, since many of the traditions and icons that we have today are actually traditions that came from the Victorian era. So you can thank Prince Albert and some of the things he brought over from Germany for that. <laughs> That's right. So in order to get a better sense of what's happening with a sort of you know late Georgian Regency era Christmas, we actually have to go back even further in time to the Interregnum and Oliver Cromwell. And so during the Interregnum, Cromwell and the Puritans are pretty much running the show. And so when it comes to Christmas, the Puritans decided that this holiday was really a no-go. Part of their dislike was probably founded in the fact that the Bible, the work that they considered a very literal word of God, never directly states that Christ was born on December 25th. So it's not an approved holiday for the Puritans. They probably also disliked it since it was a big festival with partying and drinking and greenery, you know, aka pagan elements there. And so a lot of Christian holidays are often imposed onto pagan holidays to align with festivals and make that transition from paganism to Christianity a little bit easier. And so the timing of Christmas is what the the Puritans were having really an issue with. Christmas was essentially a non-starter. It's off the agenda. It means that you had to go to work on Christmas. There's no greenery, no festivals, no carols, nothing. Anything that treated Christmas as anything other than kind of a normal work day, (laughs) not allowed. So apparently they even had like soldiers walking around the city of London making sure things were, you know, up to scratch. So this is giving me big Scrooge vibes, to be (laughs) honest. So if any Dickensians out there know if Cromwell was actually a source material for Christmas Carol, I would completely believe you. Yeah, for sure. And we do want to mention that while Oliver Cromwell is popularly associated with banning Christmas, it was really the work of legislation through Parliament, not something being handed down on high from just him. Professor Peter Gaunt at the University of Chester notes that in the 1640s, when much of this legislation was being passed, Cromwell was not yet Lord Protector, and while he was an MP, he was actually frequently away from London on military campaigns, so not necessarily instrumental in getting this legislation passed. And he was obviously sympathetic based on what we know of his personal beliefs, and also since the bans remained after he became Lord Protector in 1653. But either way, the crackdown on Christmas was in place until 1660 with the Restoration reversing a lot of this. 
So when we get to the Georgian era, Christmas bounces back, but, you know, it's a bit of a slow build. And we get a gradual reinstitution of traditions that, you know, really peaks in the Victorian era. Like Victorians, they love Christmas. Oh, yeah. But in Austin's time, Christmas is a prolonged season of parties and balls, you know, for the wealthy. And we definitely see that with some of the larger events that happen in Austin's novels. Yeah. I mean, I'm almost all of the novels have some sort of reference to this, right? So like in Mansfield Park, Sir Thomas is giving the ball for Fanny and William. Pride and Prejudice, the, the Bennets are hosting relatives, right? Yeah. And it's like very traditional. It's basically like, oh, the gardeners come every yeah. Christmas, like they always do. In Persuasion, we see the Musgroves having a very old timey country Christmas at Upper Cross with roaring fires and, you know, meat pies, and all that right. kind of stuff. Yeah. Even in Sense and Sensibility, we get Willoughby kind of like dancing the night away. In Emma, the Westons give their infamous <laughs> party. <laughs> yeah. So it's all over in terms of like the parties, the gatherings. That's very, very typical for Regency Christmas season. The Christmas season ran from December 6th, which is St. Nicholas Day, to January 6th. So things kick off December 6th. Then we get, you know, all of the build up to Christmas, Christmas Day, the t- December 25th. Whether or not it's on a Sunday, this is usually going to start with a church service. The Darcys would definitely be in their family pew, for example. And then St. Stephen's Day is the day after Christmas, so the 26th, the holiday for the first, one of the first Christian martyrs. It's also known as Boxing Day. And then by Twelfth Night, that's the evening of January 5th, this is the end of kind of the Christmas tide. This is the 12th day of Christmas, as you may have already deduced. And Twelfth Night is also known as Epiphany Eve, with Epiphany and the official close of the Christmas season the next day on January 6th. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of this like, seriously month-long Christmas celebration for the wealthy. And the holiday is particularly visible in the celebrations by the gentry in their fancy houses and estates. So from, again, that whole month, we're going to see a lot of house parties and balls. And it's a popular time for courtship. People are being particularly social and families are together. It's a great time to try to set some people up. Yeah. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And we should just mention that the extended Christmastide house parties kind of dwindle after the Regency era, since the Victorians move into more like insular celebrations, kind of more just family units. And it also, you know, they're a lot more serious about their work week. They're like, you know, industrial revolution, get back to work, people. So bank holidays, or in the US, what we would just call a federal holiday, are not a thing during this time. That is something that comes along in the Victorian era. So a lot of people worked on Christmas Day. And, and of course, many people in healthcare and service industry jobs also do still today. Right. But there just wasn't that same kind of lead up to Christmas that many of us are used to in a modern era. Certainly, you could not go down to Regency Target and just like pick up a light up snowman <laughs> for your front yard. You know, like that was not a thing. Right. And a lot of the sort of visual ideas that we have of Christmas when we're thinking, you know, period dramas and like old timey Christmas and all that kind of stuff. They're actually very Victorian. So Christmas trees were not a widespread trend during Austin's time. Queen Charlotte had brought them to court, but Christmas trees wouldn't fully catch on until Prince Albert and Queen Victoria brought them into fashion in the 1840s. And commercially produced Christmas cards are another Victorian invention with Sir Henry Cole commissioning a run of cards illustrated by John Calcott Horsley in 1843. And Sir Henry would later go on to be the first director of what is now known as the Victoria and Albert Museum. Okay. In Georgian and Regency Christmas decorations, this would have more likely consisted of greenery like holly and ivy, maybe some mistletoe, you know, always good for some potential merriment there. (laughs) And there was apparently quite a few ideas, opinions and superstitions about when you should put your greenery up and also about when it should come down. So that part hasn't really changed. You know, people (laughs) still have those debates about like, the tree needs to go up or the tree needs to come down, those sorts of things. 
But yeah, apparently there was like like real superstitions about this. Is like January 6th, you must take your greenery yep. down in the Regency era. Bad luck. But the real celebration, really, is food. Let's be honest. That's where the party's at. So for those who had money and leisure available to them, they would gather with families and friends and eat a lot of food. I mean, does this sound familiar? Yes. <laughs> so certainly a household like Pemberley is going to make a real feast about this, right? So this is where you're going to see a lot of that real prep, especially for a large estate like Pemberley. You know, the servants are going to be very busy with guests likely staying for several days or weeks and perhaps local visitors just coming for the day, you know, on top of just preparing rooms for those guests and like yeah. all that kind of stuff. There's also a lot of food to prepare. And this is a time when preparing food is a lot more labor intensive and takes a lot more time and a lot more planning and a lot more forethought. Again, you cannot just go down to the Target and pick up your pre-whipped mashed potatoes. Like it's not a thing. <laughs> yeah. Labor intensive. Definitely. Yes. The types of foods that might be served going to include your classic roast beef or goose. Venison and turkey were also popular. There's actually mention about turkeys in Austin's letters. So, you know, mm, we know she was okay. a fan. But turkey actually really hit its stride. What a funny thing <laughs> to say. <laughs> Those turkeys just out there trotting. <laughs> they really hit their stride in the Victorian era, thanks in large part to, spoiler alert, Scrooge's gift of a turkey to the Cratchits mm -hmm. at the end of A Christmas Carol. So again, like we keep coming back to Victorians and also Dickens. Yeah. He did some stuff with A Christmas Carol, for sure. <laughs> Other foods that would have been associated with the holiday season during this time, oysters, mince pies, and brawn, which is basically meat jelly. And that is actually like specifically mentioned in that scene of the Christmas celebrations at Uppercross. Like there's mm. a mention of like meat pies and brawn. Okay. So all of that would have been standard Christmas fare. And for Twelfth Night, there might be a Twelfth Cake, which would be a large spiced plum or fruit cake, very rich, studded with fruit, oftentimes very lavishly decorated. And they could also be individual cakes handed out to each guest, but, you know, it's more fun to make a big giant one, I think. Oh, sure. So as just a side note, Penn Vogler actually has some great recipes of these traditional holiday dishes, but updated for a modern audience and with, you know, actual measurements and things that people can follow <laughs> in her book, Dinner with Mr. Darcy. So a fun recommendation. If somebody's feeling like they want to recreate Christmas at Pemberley at home, there are some good resources out there. Excellent. <laughs> well, and these holidays gatherings would also include, like, drinks. The holiday drinks being things like wassail or mulled wine. And this would be especially more common at country gatherings or assemblies. So that's, you know, special seasonal drinks are happening as well. So in addition to all of the food and deliciousness there, there are lots of traditional games and things that would happen during these celebrations as well. One of the traditions of Twelfth Night, for example, was a game where everyone in attendance is playing a part based on cards that you would draw from like a purchase set, or you could make your own um, version if you're getting down with your Pinterest self. <laughs> so lots of opportunities for silliness with everyone playing different characters. Usually a king and a queen would be selected to oversee the revels, you know, and one tradition actually included baking a dried bean or pea or even a coin into a cake. So whoever got the foreign object in their slice would be the king or the queen of Twelfth Night. So it's, it's kind of watch your teeth while you're eating these cakes, <laughs> right. but then, you know, the perk being that you get to just stand back and watch all your friends and family act like revels that they are. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just like a lot of silliness, for sure. Right. Yeah. Another popular winter or holiday game was Snapdragon, which honestly seems extremely ill-advised, but what do I know? <laughs> I've never played the game. I've never seen it being played. I'd love for somebody who's like a Snapdragon aficionado, let me know what the appeal to this game is. <laughs> Basically, you toss a bunch of raisins into like a shallow bowl douse it with brandy and then you set the whole dish on fire and then you take turns grabbing raisins and then eating them just shoving molten hot fruit right into your face i don't i don't understand 
Um, I, I don't know that I would be interested in playing Snapdragon. If this is like still a family tradition in your household, please write in. Please, please, please. Listen to mail. I need to know. We need to know. Exactly. <laughs> the thing about Austin at gmail.com. Please tell me everything. Well, and let's see. So there's, so there are some other traditions as well, right? So gift exchanges amongst family and friends. It's not really standard practice at this time. However, the day after Christmas is St. Stephen's Day or Boxing Day. And it was the tradition to then present gifts to servants on this day. So Elizabeth at Pemberley would be overseeing, along with the capable Mrs. Reynolds, the stalwart Mrs. Reynolds. We love Mrs. Reynolds. She knows how to show you a portrait like no one else. (laughs) That's right. So Elizabeth and Mrs. Reynolds would be distributing presents or money to the servants and the household staff. That would be like a planned kind of event of distribution on, on Boxing Day. There's a lot going on here. There's definitely a lot of traditions that we didn't touch on because there's so many things that are regional, you know, things that are specific to households. But those are some of the big ones that we wanted to cover. Yeah. The main things to note is just like a house like Pemberley, it's most likely going to be a full house at Christmas. They're going to, you know, you can imagine the Bingleys are there, the Bennetts are there, the gardeners have already been invited. You're going to have a full house and there's going to be a lot of food and This is like extended house party, which again is great that you have this house that's so big that you can invite 20 people and still feel like you basically have your own space. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You're not running into anybody. You know, you could walk down an entire corridor and not see anybody because your house is so huge. (laughs) It's almost like you're kind of like turning your house into like a mini village for the winter. Yeah. With all all your favorite people and you guys are just hanging out for the next couple of weeks. Yep. You're just hanging out. You're eating food. You're apparently setting raisins on fire. (laughs) All that to say... If you didn't already know this from reading the book, this should also make it pretty clear that I don't know if you all know this, but Darcy is loaded. What? <laughs> so this is like a big estate. And I think that this is actually fairly significant in terms of Elizabeth's character because she's soon to be running this entire household, again, along with the very capable Mrs. Reynolds. Of course. We can't shout out her enough. <laughs> you really just have to call back to when she first visited Pemberley with the gardeners, right? And she thought, and of this place, I might have been mistress. In that moment, when you're reading the novel, when she has that thought, her next thought is like, oh, well, but if I had, I wouldn't have been able to be here with my aunt and uncle. You know what I mean? Right. Like In that moment, she kind of consoles herself by, oh, well, he wouldn't have wanted me to hang out with my beloved relative. So I guess it's okay that I'm not the mistress of this like grand estate. And now we see her in this moment where they've all kind of come full circle, right? Yeah. And obviously they know each other well enough and she feels comfortable enough that they're not even married yet. Uh-huh. And she's just like, yeah, I think I will invite the gardeners to Christmas. And I just think that's so cute. It's very cute. It shows how happy she is in her engagement and also shows how comfortable she already is with Darcy and with her future role to invite her relatives. She had thought, oh, he would never approve of them. And now she's just casually writing to her aunt and uncle. And I can just imagine Darcy being like, hey, invite them for Christmas. But I like to think it's just that she already knows that he would be totally fine with it. Oh, yeah. That's the kind of relationship they have. And sort of speaks to her already being so confident in this role she'll be taking on. You know, take that, Lady Catherine. Like, watch me run this household. That she's comfortable extending those invitations as if it were already her home and kind of being like, yes, I will be playing hostess to a grand country estate Christmas. Which is like a really big thing, right? Because, you know, she's grown up in Longbourn, which is, you know, a decent estate, but it's significantly smaller. And so the fact that she's jumping from Longbourn, where she was never even fully in charge of things, to this confidence that she can help Darcy run Pemberley you know, she already knows Mrs. Reynolds is going to help her out, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact that she's just, she's willing to jump into this, it, yes, it's it's showing confidence in their relationship. But it also shows that, you know, when earlier in the novel, when she's like, you know, when Catherine DeBer- Lady Catherine de Berg comes in, she's like, you're not my nephew's equal. And she's like, I'm a gentleman's daughter. He's a gentleman. We're equal footing. It's showing this kind of confidence 
in their relationship, which is just delightful. And so managing Christmas at Pemberley, especially if outside guests are invited, which is obviously what's what's happening here, it has to be one of this level. It's essentially like you have to be a professional event manager or like a wedding planner at this point. That's a full-time job right there. And so she's like, yeah, bring it on. It is fully hostess with the mostess, for sure. I think it also, it's in the letter that, that she's writing, but the fact that it kind of, it leaves this like kind of open, you are all to come to Pemberley at Christmas. It kind of, I love that the novel, it kind of invites us as readers to kind of imagine what that Christmas at Pemberley is going to be like for the first time with the Darcys. It immediately kind of puts you in that space. Because we're all welcome. I love that. So where else do we see this in Austen's works, adaptations? I mean, we've already kind of mentioned a couple of the places where in Austen's novels, there's, you know, parties that are happening around Christmas time. Christmas at Pemberley is also a very popular plot device in many Pride and Prejudice retellings, continuations, all of that, which I'm nowhere near as well versed in those as many people I know. But I have read quite a few where Christmas is a thing. And oftentimes it is revolving around some kind of annual Christmas ball at Pemberley that Lizzie revives after becoming mistress. And in the world of historical romance, I feel like Twelfth Night is actually a much bigger deal. A lot more opportunities for scandal, you know, with (laughs) all those revels, everyone playing a character. Snapdragon is also a game that I've seen in many, come up in many historical romance. Everyone's got to stand so close to each other. There's like a lot of rubbing of shoulders. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The sparks are not just from the raisins. That's what I'm saying. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) If any of you have any thoughts on any of these Christmas traditions, or if any of you still partake of any of these Christmas traditions, particularly Snapdragon, but really any of them, we would love to hear about it. You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can find us on our website, The Thing About Austin, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be talking about Regency birthday celebrations in honor of Austin's own birthday. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.